Welcome to Urantia Radio, the podcast where we share and study the Revelation, and we're going to do a little bit of both on this episode. Uh, Ten questions I've always wanted to ask you, the listener, and uh, I'm hoping that you'll give me a response, or at least it will provoke some interesting, I don't know, self-examination uh, about where we sit with the Urantia Revelation in this, in this time. And then dovetailing that, I want to read just a short excerpt from paper 75 on the default of Adam and Eve. I was reading it a few days ago, and it really touched me in a certain way because it seems like we're in a sea of confusion that's not unlike what things might have been like for Adam and Eve when they were first here. It also, in one short paragraph, is a real teachable moment. And since our uh, primary duty here on the podcast to study the Revelation as well as share it, I thought paper 75 would be a real good place to uh, to read and think about. But first I want to get to the uh, audience questions. These are top questions that I would like to ask you. Uh, you have taken your time to listen to these podcasts. Uh, you've taken time out of your day. You hopefully follow and share these podcasts with other folks who might be aware of the Urantia book and are equally excited about it as I am. And so this is my attempt to sort of get to know you a little bit better. And and I encourage you to either send me a note via email or you can send me a recording. If you think it's something that you'd like to share with the listeners at large, that would be completely great. For those of you who uh, know how to do recordings and want to send something, that's great. Uh, but these are good questions, I think, and, and they deserve to be asked. And uh, so we'll start off. There are not many, but just a few. And then we'll go on to paper 75. So the first question I have for you, what convinced you the Urantia book was a revelation? Or have you been convinced? And if you haven't been convinced, what it is, what is it that prevents you from accepting its authenticity? So there's a good first question. What's convinced you the book is real? And what has not convinced you that the book is real? Number two, have you ever been able to convince someone or has anyone ever come to you asking about the book? And how was that experience for you? Now, a little personal testimony here, and it's very striking to me, but I have uh, had this book in my life since I was 18 or 19 years old. Almost everybody that I am close to knows that I read this book and study this book. And now we're going on since that was 1981 or 82. We're looking at 40 years of having that book and reading it and studying it. And do you know how many people in my personal circle of friends or family have actually come to me in all of those years and said, Hey, can you tell me a little bit more about your book? Two, my mom, when I first started reading it, and my brother, also, when I first started reading it. And that's only because he was young and he and I sort of think a lot alike. So out of all those other people in my life, every single one of them, none of them have ever asked me about the Urantia book. Oh, you know, maybe a casual... Oh, yeah, well, you know, I've talked to my children about it. I've talked to my wife. 
There are some people I choose not to speak with. It's better that they don't know. People tend to get labeled when they're misunderstood, so why go there? I just tell people, look, I'm a, I'm a Jesusonian, and I read this book, and I like it. But no one is ever actually engaged. And I wonder, is that your common experience as well? I wonder why that is. Why, you know, it's disheartening because it's such a wonderful book, isn't it? It's, it's, it's such a tremendous lifesaver, and it's given me, and I know of so many other people, such insight as to the world and, and existence. It truly is a, a magnificent scope of, of knowledge there at, at your fingertips. And yet, so few people are willing to pick up the book and just spend a half an hour on some random subject to get an understanding, then you know, what happens is they open it up and they start reading the first part or they read the foreword and they kind of hold their nose up to it and then they never, you know, they never try it again. Or if you take, a, you know, any, any instance where you're explaining some element of the book, you know, like what we're about to do with Paper 75, and it's too much. It's overwhelming for people. So that's the second question. Have you ever been able to convince someone or has anyone ever come to you and said, and and you've subsequently found that they end up becoming a reader? And what was that experience like? Number three, do you think the book will ever be accepted in this age or generation? And what I mean by accepted, I mean popular. Do you think this book will ever become popular? Number four, do you think the revelators chose the right path for introducing a new revelation? Are people capable of understanding or accepting the many truths in the Urantia book? Do you think the revelators chose the book because it was, a, it was the only way they could get? Why do you think the revelators chose the revelation in a book form? Would there have been a better alternative? Number five, what are your thoughts on Christians? Do you think they could ever accept this book as a supplement to the New Testament or to the Bible? Do you think that Christians, uh, it, at least in our age and in our generation, would ever accept the life and teachings of Jesus as they're uh, exhibited in the fourth part of the Arantia book? And what do you think it would take to get there? Do you think there are other Christian-like groups, like maybe the Mormons, who might be more open over time to the, to the teachings of the Urantia book? Number six is sort of a general question, but, <clears throat> you know, if you feel like you want to answer it, what worries you the most about today? What would you like to see happen next? That's number seven. What would you like to see happen next. Number eight, who do you expect or want to see if there is a bestowal experience? In other words, if we were to get a divine visitation from a bestowal son, who, who would you like it to be? And, and maybe we can make that a multiple choice. Maybe we could make it, you know, the choice being Jesus, Adam, Melchizedek, um, I guess those would be the three choices, or someone new. Uh, number nine, what personalities in our long human history 
uh, from the Arantia book fascinate you the most and why? And what appeal do they have to you? And you can even pick one or two. But that's question number nine. What personalities in our long human history from the Arantia book fascinate you the most and why? And then finally, number 10, what could this podcast do to properly further the growth of the revelation? Or should it even continue? You know, oftentimes when I look back at all the different episodes, and I don't generally listen to them, once I've done them, I, I, I just it's it's hard for me to go back and listen because, you know, I'm in a different mindset and you know, so each one of these podcasts really do reflect not only what's on my mind, but also how I feel about certain things. And feelings change over time. And the important thing is that the Arantia Radio podcast is a way of sharing the divine revelation in the public square for both people who are familiar with it and people that are not familiar with it, but maybe looking for, you know, a, a, a new kind of advanced religious truth or historical truth or even just a new philosophy. So that's why I do it. And that's why I'm thankful for you. So I want to get to paper 75. It's a brief read and it ties into some of the challenges that I think I, as a Urantia book reader face in trying to introduce the book or the revelation or the teachings uh, to the world and some of the frustration that I feel about people and their resistance to this revelation. Uh, I don't know if I, I told you this, but the thing that got me into the Urantia book was the Adam and Eve papers. Uh, they were shared to me by a friend, a co-worker. We were talking about Adam and Eve, and I had always been fascinated by the Adam and Eve story as I'm sure many people are, and they have certainly made their way into our society. And I looked one day on Wikipedia, and I realized that the influence of Adam and Eve is not just a Western influence. If you look a lot at a lot of Eastern faith systems, you'll find uh, that Adam and Eve uh, appear in many of them. So their impact on our old society, our old history, is quite vast. So needless to say, uh, you know, the Urantia book offers a fresh presentation of the story of Adam and Eve, and I'm going to share a little bit with you. This is the default of Adam and Eve, and the reason I'm choosing it is because it does sort of illustrate, uh, it, it teaches us a lot, there's a lot to unpack, but it, it basically also summarizes the Urantia problem and a lot of what we're going through today. So let me just read, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll draw some conclusionary remarks. The Adamic mission on experimental rebellion seared and isolated Urantia was a formidable undertaking, and the material son and daughter early became aware of the difficulty and complexity of their planetary assignment. Nevertheless, they courageously set about the task of solving their manifold problems, but when they addressed themselves to an all-important work of eliminating the defectives and degenerates from among the early human strains, they were quite dismayed. They could see no way out of the dilemma, and they could not take counsel with their superiors on either Jerusalem, the system headquarter world, or Adentia, the constellation headquarter world. Here they were, isolated, and day by day, confronted with some new and uncomplicated tangle, some problem that seemed to be unsolvable. So there you go. Here's Adam and Eve, all by themselves, dealing with the natives. 75, 
uh, paragraph two. Under normal conditions, the first work of a planetary Adam and Eve would be the coordination and blending of the races. But on Urantia, such a project seemed just about hopeless. For the races, while biologically fit, had never been purged of their retarded and defective strains. So we have to remember that by the time the Andonites the Andites showed up, which were the Aboriginal humans, the first, which you might call the Denisovans. <clears throat> they, um, you know, they were not very advanced; they were very crude, uh, and so there were still a lot of earlier mixtures of certain kinds of humanoids that were kind of human, but you know, they they you know may have had maybe too much Neanderthal in them, or perhaps there was too much. Um, even some of the other primates. Uh, so there were a lot of different kinds of strains of humanity running around at this time. And this was 40,000 40, years ago. <clears throat> so their first job, which would normally be a blending, taking these separate you know, races and blending them together, well, they had to, first of all, deal with the savages that they were dealing with. You know, these, these barely humans that were probably more animalistic than anything. And they certainly didn't speak the language of Adam and Eve, so <clears throat> imagine that. What a what a challenge, right? <clears throat> so, so we read on, um, uh, moving on. Adam and Eve found themselves on a sphere wholly unprepared for the proclamation of the brotherhood of man. A world groping about in abject spiritual darkness and cursed with confusion worse confounded by the miscarriage of the mission of the preceding administration, and that one going back half a million years with the Caligastia upheaval. Mind and morals were at a low level, and instead of beginning the task of affecting religious unity, they must begin all anew the work of converting the inhabitants to the most simple forms of religious belief. Instead of finding one language ready for adoption, they were confronted by the worldwide confusion of hundreds upon hundreds of local dialects. No atom of the planetary service was ever set down on a more difficult world. The obstacles seemed insuperable, and the problems beyond creature solution. Paper 75, still uh, section 1, paragraph (laughs) 4. They were isolated, and the tremendous sense of loneliness which bore down upon them was all the more heightened by the early departure of the Melchizedek receivers. Only indirectly, by means of the angelic orders, could they communicate with any being off the planet. Slowly their courage weakened, their spirits drooped, and sometimes their faith almost faltered. And this is the picture of the consternation of these two noble souls, as they pondered the tasks which confronted them. They were both keenly aware of the enormous undertaking involved in the execution of their planetary assignment. Probably no material son of Nebadon was ever faced with such a difficult and seemingly hopeless task as confronted Adam and Eve in the sorry plight of Urantia. But they would have sometime met with success had they been more far-seeing and patient. Patient is italicized here. Both of them, especially Eve, were altogether too impatient 
They were not willing to settle down to the long, long endurance test. They wanted to see some immediate results, and they did. But the results thus secured proved most disastrous, both to themselves and to their world. We could read a little bit more, so I don't leave you with a cliffhanger here. So Calagastia paid frequent visits to the garden and held many conferences with Adam and Eve. But they were adamant to all of his suggestions of compromise and shortcut adventures. They had been uh, before them enough of the results of the rebellion to produce effective immunity against all such insinuating proposals. Even the young offspring of Adam were uninfluenced by the overtures of Dalagastia. And of course, Calagastia and Dalagastia are supermortal, not visible to humans, uh, but the former actually being the planetary prince who aligned with Lucifer during the rebellion some 250,000 years previous, 200,000 pre- years previous. And this disruption uh, disrupted the early evolutionary path of all of the colored races for context. And of course, neither Calagastia nor his associates had power to influence any individual against his will, much less to persuade the children of Adam to do wrong. So here's Calagastia trying to help Adam and Eve when he's the one that created all these problems, right? And Calagastia, by the way, for those who don't know, is the devil. When we talk about the snake, Calagastia is the, is the snake. It must be remembered that Calagastia was still the titular planetary prince of Urantia, a misguided but nevertheless high son of the local universe. He was not finally deposed of until the times of Christ, Michael, on Urantia. But the fallen prince was persistent and determined. He soon gave up working on... Yeah, I guess he would be the prince of darkness, right? But the fallen prince was persistent and determined. He soon gave up working on Adam and decided to try a wily flank attack on Eve. The evil one concluded that the only hope for success lie in the adroit employment of suitable persons belonging to the upper strata of the Nodite group, the descendants of his one-time corporeal staff associates, and the plans were accordingly laid for entrapping the mother of the violet race. The plot thickens. It was farthest from Eve's intention ever to do anything which would militate against Adam's plan or jeopardize the planetary trust that they had. Knowing the tendency of women to look upon immediate results rather than to plan farsightedly for more remote effects, the Melchizedeks, before departing, had especially enjoined Eve as to the peculiar dangers besetting their isolated position on the planet and had in particular warned her never to stray from the side of her mate, from her mate. That is, to attempt no personal or secret method of furthering their mutual undertakings. In other words, you've got these Melchizedek before they're leaving, telling Eve, look, don't, don't try to go off and do anything without consulting Adam. You guys are in this together. Right? So... Uh, Eve had most scrupulously carried out these instructions for more than a hundred years, and it did not occur to her that any danger would attach to the increasingly private and confidential visits she was enjoying with a certain nodite, 
whose name was Serapatatia. The whole affair developed so gradually and naturally that she was taken unawares. And I'm going to skip a little bit because I want to go down to what actually happened, okay? Skipping ahead, we're just skipping one quick paragraph, uh, but here's the bulk of what happened. Adam had just finished his 100 years on earth when Serapatatia, upon the death of his father, came to the leadership of the Western or Syrian Confederation of the Nodite tribes. You know, the reference there is east to the land of Nod. So the Serapatatia was from that tribe, from the land of Nod. Serapatatia was a brown-tinted man, a brilliant descendant of the one-time chief of the Dalamatia Commission on Health, mated with one of the master female minds of the blue races of those distant days. All down through the ages, this line had held authority and wielded a great influence among the western Nodite tribes. Serapatatia had made several visits to the garden, and of course the Garden of Eden, and had become deeply impressed with the righteousness of Adam's cause. And shortly after assuming the leadership of the Syrian Nodites, he announced his intention of establishing an affiliation with the work of Adam and Eve in the garden. The majority of, the, of his people joined him in this program, and Adam was cheered by the news that the most powerful and the most intelligent of all the neighboring tribes had swung over almost bodily to the support of the program of world improvement. It was decidedly heartening, and shortly after this great event, Serapatatia and his new staff were entertained by Adam and Eve in their own home. Serapatatia became one of the most able and efficient of all of Adam's lieutenants. He was entirely honest and thoroughly sincere in all of his activities. He was never conscious, even later on, that he had, was being used as a circumstantial tool of the wily Caligastia. Presently, Serapatatia became the associate chairman of the Edenic Commission on Tribal Relations, and many plans were laid for the more vigorous prosecution of the work of winning the remote tribes to the cause of the garden. <clears throat> he held many conferences with Adam and Eve, especially with Eve, and they talked over many plans for improving their methods. One day, during a talk with Eve, it occurred to Serapatatia, Serapatatia, that it would be very helpful if, while awaiting the recruiting of large numbers of the violet race, which is Adam and Eve were the parents of the violet race, something could be done in the meantime immediately to advance the needy waiting tribes. Serapatatia contended that if the Nodites, as the most progressive and cooperative race, could have a leader born to them of part origin in the violet stock. It would constitute a powerful tie binding these people more closely to the garden. And all of this was soberly and honestly considered to be for the good of the world since this child to be reared and educated in the garden would exert a great influence for good over his father's people. And then we'll close here. It should be, again, emphasized that Serapatatia was altogether honest and wholly sincere in all that he proposed. He never once suspected that he was playing into the hands of Caligastia and Dalagastia. 
Serapitatia was entirely loyal to the plan of building up a strong reserve of the violet race before attempting the worldwide upstepping of the confused people of Urantia. But this would require hundreds of years to consummate, and he was impatient. He wanted to see some immediate results, something in his own lifetime. He made it clear to Eve that Adam was oftentimes oftentimes discouraged by the little that had been accomplished toward uplifting the world. For more than five years, these plans were secretly matured. Five years. At last, they had developed to the point where Eve consented to have a secret conference with Cano. And he was a magnificent specimen of the survival of the superior physique and outstanding intellect of his remote progenitors, of the prince's staff. So I'm thinking, you know, like, maybe like a Tom Brady, right? <clears throat> and Cano also thoroughly believed in the righteousness of the Serapitatia project. Outside of the garden, multiple mating was a common practice. Influenced by flattery, enthusiasm, and great personal persuasion, Eve then and there consented to embark upon the much-discussed enterprise to add her own little scheme of world-saving to the larger and more far-reaching divine plan. Before she quite realized what was transpiring, the final step had been taken. It was done. And that's the beginning of written history because that's when Cain was born. Cain is the half-son of Adam. That's the sin, the great sin. He, uh, Eve, she broke the rules. Material sons and daughters are not supposed to mate with the sons of man. And you know the story, but it's such a great story as told in paper 75, and it plays to some of the points and some of the questions that that I posed in the beginning. You know, there is a, there is a, there's sometimes a, a temptation to become discouraged because we don't see progress. And certainly, uh, Adam and Eve had to deal with that reality for well over a hundred years. They saw very little progress outside of the garden. And so impatience, I guess, makes us uh, vulnerable to taking shortcuts and sometimes compromising what, uh, what I've often said uh, is a great term that I love from Chris Halverson, pouring new wine into old wineskins. You know, the Urantia book is a new revelation. And sometimes it'll be tempting for us to want to pour it into the old wineskins of Christianity. And Christianity has all of those other wineskins that it's been poured into. And um, so, you know, just some some thoughts there about how, how of course, that changed the course of, of human history. Because of that default, we were deprived of the uh, the... We receive the the benefits of the biological uplift, but not so much in the spiritual. And that was the point. That was the, the pivot point of history. And there we close it on this edition of the Arantia Radio Podcast, studying and sharing the revelation. Join me online. I always love hearing from you. Radio at gmail.com. Radio at gmail.com. It's a lot of fun. And if you are uh, looking for a good way to spend the afternoon, I encourage you to read the entire story, uh, if you haven't read it in a while, of the story of Adam and Eve. It's a 
tremendously well narrated story and inspiring on many on many levels. Until next time, I'm Jim Watkins. God bless.